0: Our New Testament reading tonight is from 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you please join me? We'll ask for God's help. Father, only you can give us ears to see, or rather, ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive. We need you to do that work. We are beyond our own strength and our own wisdom. But we thank you. That's the very purpose that you've gathered us. We have heard your voice. We have seen. We have heard. We have felt all throughout this service. So we pray you would continue that good work. In Christ's name. And for his glory. Amen. In the passage we have before us, the author, the Apostle Paul, says that those, those that rob others of legitimate gratitude are hypocritical liars and peddle a doctrine of demons. Pretty strong language, huh? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find stronger language. In the New Testament, you think, man, why? What's the big threat? It's just Thanksgiving we're talking about here. And that's because we fail to recognize how powerful Thanksgiving is. What a powerful thing it is. We tend to categorize Thanksgiving in the bucket of manners or politeness. The Bible views it, rather, as a life-defining, life-altering practice, even a weapon of spiritual warfare. I was reading an article this week um, entitled uh, Gratitude Without God in the Atlantic magazine. And even the culture recognizes the power Of gratitude and thanksgiving. The social science on gratitude is pretty resolute. Feeling thankful is good for you. And then they quote a professor from Baylor University. There's something called a grateful personality that psychologists have studied. They find that if you're greater in the grateful personality, you tend to have increased life satisfaction, happiness, optimism, hope, positive emotion, Less anxiety and depression. Physical benefits may include fewer symptoms of illness and better sleep. That's not a small list of benefits, right? Just for gratitude, for Thanksgiving. The Bible is perhaps the greatest research book we have on Thanksgiving. It runs all throughout. You'd be hard-pressed to find more illustrations, more reflection on thanksgiving. And so it has the ability to take us deeper into the power of thanksgiving, but it also speaks to us of the threats to thanksgiving. Now, I think many of us would say, well, I'm aware of some threats like grumbling and complaining and pride. But in our passage, the Apostle Paul enlightens our eyes to see hidden threats to this very powerful practice of thanksgiving. And as he says, uh, these are threats that are operative in the last days, which we are living in. They began in the first century. We do well not just to write it off as, well, this was something a bunch of primitives were engaged in. And so with thanksgiving just a few days away and so much at stake, Let's take some time to look at threats to Thanksgiving and guards for it. First of all, threats to Thanksgiving. Now, for some of us, the major threat to Thanksgiving may be our lack of it, meaning our personality tends perhaps to take things for granted. So maybe your problem is more pride of presumption. You just expect life to sort of work out okay and people to serve you and so on and so on. But for some of us, the opposite is the problem. Our thanksgiving is sabotaged by lingering guilt. So when someone gives us a gift, we feel just a little bit guilty. When we're enjoying good health or a vacation or maybe the job that we have or nice clothes that we wear, we feel this little voice that says you really shouldn't rejoice too much in that. That's our problem. It's sort of akin to survivor's guilt. Right? You've heard of survivor's guilt. Someone goes to war, their friends don't come back, they come back, they feel guilty for living. Maybe we could call this uh, been blessed guilt. Where someone who feels who has been blessed feels like they can never fully enjoy it. They're already they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, for something to go wrong. And yet it's more than individual personality that fosters this. Our culture subtly leads us down this road as well, and the messages that we hear. On the one hand, we can recognize in American culture the threat of materialism and hedonism, right? Materialism is the belief that life consists in more stuff and what I possess. Hedonism the belief that my life consists in pleasure and happiness. Now, we can acknowledge to some degree, yeah, these are real problems in American society. But often the way we respond to them is in a slingshot manner. We go all the way to the other side. You know, if, if your goal is not to get in accidents, you could say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to never speed. But also the other thing you have to do is never drive too, too slowly, right? Because actually the cause of accidents can happen on either side. You can actually get a ticket for driving too slowly. Anybody got one of those? I'm just curious. (laughs) Anyway, I've never met anybody that's gotten those. And so what happens in response to materialism and hedonism, our culture travels to simplicity and self-denial, aestheticism. Let me give you an example of this. This was a quote I read, and for what it's worth, this is not coming from a Christian author or thinker. Sustainability requires that humans lead lives of simplicity without all the material extras we tend to acquire. This could result in an ascetic life, which typically involves some form of self-denial. But asceticism can help individuals reconsider the role of consumerism in their lives and instead adopt a more spiritual and compassionate life, now aware of their responsibility to the earth. Now, I could read that most of you would say, well, what's the problem with that? I mean, moderation, right? Stewardship, a compassionate spirit, all that sounds pretty good. The problem isn't the goal of a compassionate spirit. The problem is when self-denial and simplicity are seen as ends in and of themselves. Ability to produce compassion in a more spiritual life. And the evidence would actually suggest otherwise. There was a study done at Loyola University where they took two groups of people, those that eat organic and those that eat comfort food, And what they measured was their empathy. They put experiences before them of uh, circumstances where empathy and sympathy was called. And they found that uh, in large margin, the group that ate comfort food was more sympathetic. And that the organic eaters were actually judgmental. Now maybe, you know, uh, this isn't isolated. Uh, There was an article in Bloomberg... The title was Dinner in a Side of Self-Righteousness. <laughs> and the writer said this, Back when I was a vegan, there was a joke I heard a lot. I'm a level 5 vegan. They'd say I don't eat anything that casts a shadow. It's an all too telling poke at a tendency among vegans to suggest their lofty superiority over other mere mortals because whatever your dietary restrictions are, theirs are even more stringent. But we don't even have to go to the the data and articles we've all read. There's personal experience. Um, Can I make a public confession to you? Thank you. That's a loving community. I use Splenda. I use Splenda. And I use it every day. Several packets. Now, I know some of you right now are really concerned. Like, you know, I haven't heard the report. Let me tell you, I've read the research. I've talked to my doctor. My conscience feels clean. I feel okay with Splenda. But that doesn't stop the fact that I often served lectures about Splenda. In fact, I, I experienced a degree of public persecution. The other day, I went into a coffee shop, and I saw displayed before me there was raw sugar and white sugar. And I went up and said, "Uh, excuse me, do you have any fake, I mean, Splenda? And they looked at me and smiled and said, "Mm mm-mm. It was clear to me that that wasn't appropriate to have. It wasn't even offered, right? Now, for you, it might not be Splenda. It might be that you do eat meat, you don't eat meat. It might be that you partake in gluten, you don't partake in gluten, right? It might be a number of things. It might be moderate alcohol, yes, even tobacco use. And the church isn't immune to this. Over my years, I have heard people share their zeal of healthy smoothies, essential oils, and farm-to-table food often with more passion than they share their faith in Jesus. And I've mentioned to you before, when my wife Meg was battling and in the throes of her chronic illness, well-meaning Christians, not in this community, uh, well-meaning Christians, um, speaking to her implied, well, maybe the reason you're not healed is because you're not eating the right foods. So this is very well alive in the Christian understanding of things. So even today, in these last days, this threat exists. But why, again, is Paul so agitated? Why would he again call it a doctrine of demons? Now, maybe a bit of context would help here. In Paul's day, uh, Greek philosophy was in the air. You couldn't help breathing. it. And part of Greek philosophy taught there was a division between the body and the soul, and the soul was closer to truth and goodness, and the physical was inferior. And as this worked its way into the church, there were those that began to teach that uh, it was more spiritual to abstain from certain foods and abstain from marriage because that meant abstaining from sex. These were the, f- the falsehood that was brought, and it's not only in this letter you find it comes, that Jesus talks about it, the Apostle Peter gets a vision for it, it's, off- it's mentioned in many letters of the New Testament. So this is a pervasive problem. In fact, Paul will go so far to say it had caused some to wander away from the faith. Again, At this point, we have to say, listen, he's either exaggerating a bunch, this is apostolic exaggeration, or I'm missing something. And what could we be missing? Well, in verse 4, Paul lays out a fundamental and critical principle. He talks about knowledge and truth to combat false teaching, specifically a false understanding of simplicity and self-denial. And I'm not saying there aren't positive versions of it. He says in verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And there Paul lays out two major things he's trying to guard. The first one is God is good. God is good all the time and through and through. And we see it from the created world that he's made As God made the very physical world, he kept saying, good, 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 good. And then when he made you, he said, very good. You in the totality of your being. The book of James says it this way. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And in that, James tells us what's to be included on that list of thanksgiving and also what we would learn of God as we do. Like Paul, James has a pretty extensive list of what's to be included. Everything. You see, Paul uses the widest language possible. Give thanks for everything and nothing is to be rejected. Now, at that point, you might say, well, isn't God talking about like me- immediate creation, like direct creation, meaning we give thanks for the apples, not the applesauce and the apple pie? No, we actually give thanks for the applesauce and the apple pie and the candied apples. Well, how do we know that? Well, listen to Psalm 104. You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make its face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. What is he talking about there? He's talking about raw materials which we then cultivate and produce into good things. So that everything means everything good under the sun that God has made and that we produce together. And we can go beyond things. We can talk about beauty, art, Math, medicine, tools, just laws, everything that is good, we must give thanks for. John Calvin said, this is the only reasonable thing to do. I included this little quote in your bulletin. Should the Lord have attracted our eyes to the beauty of the flowers and our sense of smell to pleasant odors, and should it then be sin to drink them in? Has he not even made the colors so that the one is more wonderful than the other? I mean, whether it's literature or legislation, we're called to give thanks. Listen, when Christians fast, that's different than what our culture calls self-denial. Because fasting isn't saying this is inherently bad. Rather, it recognizes with thanksgiving there is something good that I am abstaining from something beautiful. I mean, if, you, if it isn't, it's sin, and you're, you don't get any credit for that. You're supposed to stay away from that. That's not good. But what do we learn about God? James, again, as Paul says, one of the primary ways that God testify to his utter goodness are the good gifts he's given. And so there's no way If you are slow and shy on thankfulness, there is no way for you to perceive the goodness of God. And that's a dangerous thing. In fact, you might even find yourself critiquing the goodness of God, maligning it. Jesus said when he taught about prayer, if you who are evil give good gifts... How much more your father who's thoroughly give, uh, thoroughly good. And Jesus also said in our giving, he said, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because God is a cheerful giver. He loves to give you gifts. He loves to see you enjoy gifts. A myriad kind. In fact, he's so good and kind and gracious, he gives them to the just and the unjust. We read that last week. Who has not enjoyed the kindness of God? I mean, think about it. You know, the holiday seasons are coming around. And there are chances are one of you, many of you, might give a, a child a gift. Who of us would give a child a gift and think, I hope they feel just a little bit guilty about it? Parents, maybe. I don't know. Uh, right? Jerem Barris, who really is wonderful on this topic, and Jerem's been in our community, he says, The teaching that it is sinful to enjoy the gifts of creation is deeply blasphemous because it is a reflection of God's own valuation of creation. Asceticism turns its back on God and regards his creations as worthless or even worse, as somehow corruption to us, as if creation itself were a source of sin, contamination. Contamination. More spiritual to live a life devoid of beauty, of good things, of music, of literature, of painting, of color, and so forth. It is as if bare simplicity, barrenness, and even ugliness were somehow more pleasing to God. We must be very careful as we have our convictions about what we deny and what we say that we haven't crossed the line into accusing the goodness of God. But secondly, there's another thing James and Paul bring our eyes to, and that is God is not only good, God is gracious and merciful. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's just very realistic. In fact, it's on the board of, at times you think, well, this is a cynical book, but they're just looking out going, listen, the world is hard. The world is difficult. The world is full of vanity. And then listen what it says. Even in a world plagued, by trouble and vanity. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. You see, it's in um, religious philosophies and even secular philosophies that we're told that uh, approval and righteousness comes from what you do and you don't do. Especially, you know, what you give up, what you withhold from yourself. This is approval. It's a false appearance of wisdom. The focus is on external behavior instead of the heart and character. And the result is division. It causes division in communities. And if you were raised under it, it may have caused rebellion in you. When you were told not to enjoy good gifts, I remember years ago a friend of mine who was a minister ministering to a young woman in college who grew up in a uh, strict, uh, misguided Christian philosophy, where when she would use her imagination and they would hear her parents would hear it, she would be disciplined. You would be spanked because that's not truth. And some people extend that to literature, right? Fiction, lots of different things. That's an extreme example. But the point is, all of us at some point can find ourselves with this false wisdom. But the grace of God works entirely differently. Entirely different. Because approval and righteousness comes from God. It comes from God. And it's ultimately given through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Take this table, which is a wonderful convergence of what I'm talking about here. In this table, you are given bread and wine, food and drink. But it's representative of the lifeblood and the sacrifice of the Son of God that you might know grace, it is by grace that these gifts are given to you. And so the many gifts that God is giving you on a daily basis are ways he is whispering his grace to you, his kindness to you. If you want to resist hedonism, and if you want to resist materialism, and if you want to resist asceticism, then you must have a positive on the other side. Go headlong into thanksgiving for the goodness and the grace of God. Because what we're told here is one of the chief ways that you demonstrate faith and reliance and commitment to the grace of God is thanksgiving. It's thank you, God. It's such a powerful thing. But let me close with this last point just briefly. Guards for thanksgiving. Paul says, Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How do you discern? How do you discern what good gifts to partake of when physical intimacy is appropriate? Foods to eat, music that you enjoy, technology you use. Well, Paul would give us two things. There's weighing it and praying it. Weighing it. It's moral value according to the word of God. The book of Philippians chapter 4, I feel, is a helpful standard for this. Right after speaking about thanksgiving, Paul says, And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, as you discern in your life what to partake of and be thankful of, that's a pretty good standard to use. All of those things I may, you know, with a full throated praise, I may throw myself into and be thankful for. Well, what if they become an idol? What if they become an addiction? Misuse does not merit non-use, right? We know that. Anything's capable. In fact, that's what idols are good gifts that turned into gods. Instead, we need to focus our attention on why we've misused those things and not demonize them, and receive it in prayer and praise. I've said to you before my experience. Uh, especially as someone that's prone to have a guilty conscience, that I found there was a real change from when I acknowledged that God's forgiveness was real as to when I received it. I could confess my sins, I could think about guilt, and I could think, yeah, God's gracious, God's gracious, but when I started to act like our pardon does when we use it, where I say, thank you, we receive this. When you receive something, the experience is different. You can sort of echo thanksgiving in your head. You can sort of walk around and know it and acknowledge it theologically. But when you thank God, that's the act of faith. That's the game changer. That's when they become consecrated, right? They become holy to us. We're less tempted to false simplicity and false self-denial. We're less tempted to hedonism and materialism because we're enjoying God's gifts properly. They're having their right role in our lives. So, this week I tried to apply this. Every now and then I think, let me try to apply when I'm preaching. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I had, um, I had a positive experience. Uh, one was uh, I received the gift of time. Stuart talked to us quite a bit about that on a retreat. Normally when I'm walking to work or walking the dog, I feel his voice like, this is a waste of time, you need to hurry. And instead I slowed down and I looked at the leaves and I looked at the sunshine and I didn't feel guilty about it. I thought to myself, God wants me to enjoy this walk. He wants me to enjoy the world he's given me. And then I enjoyed the gift of work. You know, I don't know about you, but when I review my work week to week, I'm like, eh, you know, maybe this was good and I fell short here and all these things and there was this hard stuff I had to go through. And instead, I began to thank God for the work that I did. And it was good, it made it holy. And then there was enjoyment. Uh, Meg and I had a chance to go out and have a meal at a restaurant, it was a nice meal. And we sat there, and as we ate, and there's always this little voice that goes, well, you know, you should, should you really, you know, be, you know, out doing this? Is it really proper? I mean, there's people that don't have food, right? And let me say this about justice, because the same thing will happen maybe sometimes, and maybe this isn't your proclivity. But, you know, uh, we're looking outside, and it's raining, and it's cold, and we go, man, I got shelter. I got a warm bed. And instead of Thanksgiving, we feel guilty. Listen, if you want to fight for justice, it's not by calling God's, God's good gifts bad. That's not the antidote for justice. It's to say, I praise God for this and I want other people to have it. And so I find myself giving thanks for those things. And then I played my guitar a bit and I said to myself, man, you know, should I have this amp? Should I have spent money on an amp? I'm not a professional musician. And I was like, God is glad I got this Boscatana Katana amp. Because I can make some pretty cool sounds out of it. And then, hold your britches. I had a chance to puff on the number one voted cigar of the year. And let me tell you something. I thanked God for it. It was enjoyable. So my friends... I want to urge you, be thankful. It is a powerful change agent, but it is also a powerful weapon. Let's not let our unbelief and our enemy disarm us of it. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. We're thankful to be here together. We're thankful to hear uh, you say things to us in your word that we would otherwise not think of. We're thankful for uh, this church and the light it has and the way our voices sound as we sing. We're thankful that we've got friends here with us. We thank you for the noise of the children. We thank you, O God, for the music that we sing. We thank you for the hope the person next to us brings. We thank you, O God, for this table you set before us. We thank you for you. Who is like you, Father, Son, and Spirit?